Welcome to Navigating Cancer Together. My name is Talaya Dindi. I'm a cancer thriver, cancer doula, independent patient advocate, and owner of On the Other Side. I use my experience to help others get on the other side of cancer. Gaps between the guidance, emotional support, and education that are needed and what one receives can be huge. This podcast fills those gaps by sharing stories, resources, and information about all things related to cancer and wellness. I interview guests from all walks of life who are living with cancer, caregivers, and those who are thriving on the other side. Also, I talk with organizations, healthcare professionals, and experts in the health and wellness spaces who offer complementary and integrative care. Join me. We are in this together. Hello, everyone. This is Talaya Dindi from OnTheOtherSide.life, and you're listening to Navigating Cancer Together, the show that has something for everyone facing cancer. Why? Because everyone is different with different needs, beliefs, and perspectives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. I encourage you to open your minds and your hearts. Today, our very special guest is Edward Miskey. Edward is currently celebrating 10 years as a sole survivor of a rare cancer with the publishing of his book, Cancer, Musical Theater, and Other Chronic Illnesses, available at Barnes & Noble and other stores. For the last 18 years, Edward has spent his life in New York City writing, producing, and performing. These ventures have taken him all over the U.S. and the world. Currently, he is the executive producer of the upcoming musical TV pilot based on his book, Cancer, Musical Theater, and Other Chronic Illnesses. He is the creator of Very Toned Does Broadway's Leading Ladies, and he's the recipient of the 2011 AEA Roger Sturdivant Award. You can catch him in Devil Back, Season 1, Episode 4 on Hulu in their seasonal miniseries, Bite Size Halloween. In 2021, Edward released a dance pop album under the name Edward, the first titled Renaissancing that is available to stream anywhere you listen to music. Edward, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome. Thank you for having me. Hi. How are you feeling today, Edward? I'm good. I got some vitamin D outside today. I got some sunshine and I set some dough for some bread that I'm going to bake in the morning. So I'm feeling very like holistic and crunchy today. <laughs> <laughs> you can't go wrong there. That's wonderful. I'm glad you're in that spirit, Edward. That's great. First off, as I mentioned, you are the sole survivor of a rare cancer. And that cancer happens to be in large B-cell burkets. Please tell us what kind of cancer that is and what kind of symptoms you were experiencing. Sure. So the full mouthful of the diagnosis was rare and large B-cell burkets like non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It's obviously a subsect of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. I think at the time that I was diagnosed, I think there was only like 900 or 1,200 cases reported worldwide. There's three different kinds, two of which have to do with like children in Africa. And like, obviously that is not me. It was like, why is this happening? There was no real reason that I would have had this type of lymphoma. And there was a lot of questions. I was misdiagnosed. When I first discovered it, it was a tiny little lump under my left arm. 
And it just felt like a swollen lymph node. I didn't think much of it. I went to a doctor. He thought it was more in line with an infection. I had a CT scan. He was like, this is cat scratch fever, which I was like, that's a made up disease. (laughs) It's not, but it basically is. And put me on some antibiotics and sent me on my way. And during that period of time, like you had mentioned, I was an actor working all over the country and I was in Nevada at that point doing a show. And this lump just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger to the point where my shoulder was displaced and it was like sticking out the side. This motion is very exaggerated. It wasn't that big. (laughs) (laughs) It got to be about the size of a grapefruit. So it was very uncomfortable. My skin was all stretched out. It was, it hurt. It was like not great. But as far as the way I felt aside of that, I felt totally fine. That was the weirdest part. I felt great. I was working out all the time. I was 25 and hot and young and gorgeous and beautiful and doing all the show things and doing things that 25-year-old kids would be doing. It was a very big surprise when I came back to the city after that contract and had a biopsy done. And they were like, oh, this is this really messed up kind of cancer that no one has. And congratulations, (laughs) you have it. And so that was a wild ride. It was a trip. The day that I was checked in the hospital is still one of the most traumatic moments of my whole life. And uh, it was all just from this tiny little baby lump that started under my arm that started to eat my whole body. Thank you for sharing that, Edward. You mentioned you were initially misdiagnosed. What test or exam, what got you that diagnosis? How were they able to tell you that it was Burkitt's? So it was, God, I had everything. I had all kinds of blood work done. I had a CT scan done. I had an MRI done. And eventually what they ended up doing was just doing a needle biopsy. And they just took a bunch of samples from the lump itself and sent it off to the lab. And I don't remember how long it was between that point and the time that they told me that I had cancer, but it was a short period of time. I got back to the city right around Thanksgiving. And by the first week of December, I was in chemo. Oh, wow, that is is a very fast turnaround. So your treatment, was it just chemotherapy? Did you have to do radiation or any maintenance drugs? I did did everything. So we had originally started with the idea was to do eight rounds of chemo to get it under control. But after the first four that did not work, we changed directions. And by do not work, what I mean is we had round one and that tumor shrank down to near next to nothing. And then as soon as I was out of the hospital with no chemo in me, and we were just like in recovery mode, it grew back. That happened every single time I had chemo. It would be like the chemo would happen, the tumor would shrink down, I'd leave the hospital, it would grow back and get bigger. And it was this very weird shrinking and growing moment that it was very much like, this thing is alive and it's eating you. Have fun. We did four rounds of chemo, which included intrathecal chemotherapy into my spinal cord. I opted to do that because the other option was an Omaya catheter, which is like a big balloon that they put in your skull. And then they inject chemo into your actual brain that way. Because the idea is that if it gets into your spinal fluid or your brain fluid, it's a bigger problem, especially with the speed at which this was growing. So I opted out of not having the Omaya catheter because they didn't want to have this balloon on my head for the rest of my life. And exactly. Like scars and it screwed up the way your hair looked. And I'm very vain. And at the time I was 25 and a lot more vain. So I was like, absolutely not. That's not happening. 
Um, so we opted for the spinal tap chemo where they take out spinal fluid and they replace it with chemo. So we did that. I think I had six of those. And then over the course of the four rounds of chemo, and then I finally just was like, we're done here. Mm -hmm. Like they had a hard time accessing my spinal cord. They were like jamming things into it to try and get past the scar tissue. Cause there's only a certain amount of lumbar you can do that in. And it was a nightmare. So we were like, mm -hmm. we're done with this. We're fine. There's nothing there. We're good. Let's just stop. Then the last round of chemo, they were like, this isn't working. And this was like a very low point. They were confused as to why it wasn't working. They were running out of ideas of what they wanted to do or could do with lymphoma, I guess, is what they explained. There's chemo sensitive and then there's radiation sensitive. And because obviously mine is not chemo sensitive, they put me into radiation to which I was like, why didn't we make this decision sooner because after round two we should have been like hmm. anyway so i did radiation and that did work it stopped growing back after that point it shrank down all signs were pointing to good and they insisted that i do a stem cell transplant beyond that to which i originally at that hospital said no mm. wanted someone else to be my donor they wanted me to go through that whole thing where you're doing like the allergenic transplant we were having a hard time finding a blood match for me, for one, which was stressful. Neither of my sisters or parents were, were oh, matches. Wow. And I was like, ah. <laughs> so that was a very stressful moment. But eventually I just put my foot down and I was like, I'm 25. And going into this, I was in some of the best shape of my life. And I was like, there is zero reason why I should not be my own donor. So that is what we are doing. And stop this. Yeah. They pushed back on it. And I was like, great, then I will take my file and I will go over here to Sloan Kettering and get a second opinion because I'm done listening to what you have to say. And that was really scary and hard because I liked my doctor on a personal, like friendly level. I appreciated her and she was fun and would crack jokes. And like, I have a dark sense of humor. So she ro rode with that too. But it got to the point where I was like, I no longer trust you. Like, it just felt like they were pushing me for this. We have a rare case here. And so we want to make sure that we can publish a paper on you and we're going to do it this way. And I was like, absolutely not. I'm not your lab rat. Like, you can do the, all of those fun things and pat yourself on the back with the published papers after I'm alive. Yes. But you are not going to do something in reverse where we're going to do this and hope that I live so that you can get your paper published. That is not a thing. So I went to Sloan Kettering. They also realized I was misdiagnosed at that hospital because the first hospital, I never named them because I dragged them through the mud all the time for legal purposes. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. But they diagnosed me with basically just Burkitt's like lymphoma. Like they didn't sure. really elaborate on it. And when I went to Sloan Kettering, the oncologist that I ended up working with took one look at my slide without a microscope and she just held it up and she was like, that's not what that is. And we like had a conversation back and forth about it. We talked about my resistance to doing the transplant. And she's like, you don't have to do it, but you probably won't live past 30. I was like, okay, then I'm going to listen to you. <laughs> what I appreciated about her is that we listened to each other. I listened to her say that. And I was like, I want to be my own donor. She's absolutely. We found that one of the reasons why I wasn't able to get as many stem cells as I needed at the previous hospital was because they had me on a prophylaxis antibiotic that screws with your blood counts. To which she was furious. She was like, I know this woman. I'm calling her and I'm yelling at her. And I was like, good. Come down. Wow. Drag wow. her. <laughs> wow. Um, it was her. a circus. The whole thing was a circus. Like that whole period of time, which I think is probably, I want to say March to June of 2012, was just a complete 
circus like dog and pony show it was crazy but once we got into <laughs> once we got into sloan kettering and i stopped self-sabotaging and mm-hmm. got to the point where i was doing the stem cell transplant where i was my own donor then things started to pick up and look better Good, good. That is quite the journey. It's bad enough you get a cancer diagnosis, but when you're just going through all these different hoops, twists and turns, and you're like, hey, I'm just trying to live. I don't want to be experimented on. I don't want to be torn apart and all these other things. So I just want to congratulate you and commend you for being your own best advocate and saying, hey, this is not working for me. I'm going to get a second opinion and I'm ultimately ultimately going to go somewhere else. I just think that's so important for the listeners to hear because a lot of times people feel helpless when they get a cancer diagnosis and they're just like, I'll just do whatever they say, but you still have a voice. You can still get a second opinion, sometimes even a third opinion. Also too, I was very much in that headspace where I'm just going to do what they say. I thought was in a great hospital, but... (laughs) What really made me speak up was that radiation worked. And so the chemo fog started to go away Mm -hmm. and I was able to have a little bit more agency over myself and have a little bit more autonomy about how I felt about what was going on because chemo like that gets in your head and then you're not thinking clearly. I think you can fairly compare it to like COVID fog. It's a very similar kind of thing where you're just floating around. Okay. I'll do whatever you tell me to, which you should do to a point until your intuition kicks in and you start having red flags because that ask of getting a second opinion is what saved my life and also saved my quality of life because there is certainly a scenario in which the other transplant would have worked. However, their hope from that point was to do the transplant and then do three full rounds of full body radiation. So if I did that, I'd I'd look like a turtle right now. That's That's not a a thing. I paid a lot of money for this hair. (laughs) You're like, not the hair. Sorry. (laughs) Like not the hair again. Like I'm vain. I wanted to have, I wanted to not look like a shaved cat for the rest of my life. So it was really like the stem cell transplant scenario and the radiation that pushed me to get a second opinion. And by doing so, I saved my own life and quality of life. And also the way I look. When you decided you were going to change the path. How did your family, you mentioned your mom, your sisters, how did they respond when you said, no, I'm not going to do this? Were they supportive or were they kind of like, no, you're nuts? My parents and sisters and friends, I was very lucky to have a wonderful support system. I know that is not the case for a lot of people, but I felt lucky every single day that they were there. I had friends that would randomly show up in my hospital room and sit there with me for a day, a whole day. Mm And we had fun. I was the party room. I was like the fun room to be in that the nurses would do last so that they could spend more time with me. We made the best of a bad situation. (laughs) Up until that point, both of my parents were along for the ride and taking notes at every turn. And there were a couple situations. My mom used to mix chemotherapy, so she's adjacently familiar with how this works. And there were a couple points where they went to give me medication and the dosage was wrong. And my mom had to step up and be like, no, no, hang on isn't this, isn't, shouldn't this be this way? And they'd be like, oh yeah. Okay. So sorry. We'll be right back. Are you kidding? Yeah. So they were also at their wits end with this hospital with me. So they would have been supportive anyway. We were at the point 
at that moment where nothing was working and we were like, should we go to Germany? Should we look at alternative medicine? Should we look at going to like Switzerland? Who's doing innovative things right now? And my sister speaks German. We were like, let's get the passports in order. Let's go. (laughs) So we were looking at that as well, like doing an international hospital switch. Thankfully, that did not need to happen. But that's like the point of dire straits that we were in at that point. So when radiation started to work and I put my foot down, they were like, good, let's go. As soon as they met my new oncologist, they were like, this is the right move. Because despite the fact that she's five foot nothing, I was terrified of her terrified i'm six four i towered over her but i would i cowered <laughs> anytime oh. she came in the room. <laughs> you're like she's the one <laughs> she's the one like i'm 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 not gonna do that i'm not gonna play around with her but she knew what she was talking about that mm-hmm. whole like diagnosed me by looking at my slide was like yeah. okay all right i will back down to you and she was wonderful I'm so glad that you found the right oncologist who can really understand what was going on with you and get you on the right track so you didn't have to go through all those other things. With that being said, Edward, what is something that you wish you would have known about cancer before your diagnosis? Literally anything would have been helpful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think what I wish that I would have known was all of the things that happened that they can't tell you in a hospital, Mm -hmm. that they won't tell you in a hospital. It is the reason I wrote my book, because there's so many things outside of just medication and complications and losing your hair and whatever that happens that you're not going to get from a doctor or a nurse. In fact, when this was published, I had several medical professional people reach out to me and say, this totally changed my perspective on bedside manner. Because there's so many pieces that I talk about that are not your normal cancer conversation. Like I was broken up with in the middle of cancer. I had a friend completely stop talking to me the second Mm -hmm. I told him that I had cancer. There's a lot of conversation that I have around dating and sex and relationships within the space of being a cancer patient. You're not Mm -hmm. dead. There's still things that you want and feel and desire and the mood strikes and you're like, how do I navigate this? And, And no one really is there to tell you. There's a whole lot of don't do anything. It's teaching abstinence in high school. It doesn't work. So let's not have that conversation with me as a full-grown adult in a situation with cancer where I need to ask, hey, is it safe for me to be sexually active at this point? If so, what precautions do I need to take? And of course, this was like 11 or 12 years ago that I was in the hospital where things are very different in that conversation now than they were then. And it's just those things because no one prepared me for the fact that like, most men in situations like this with a significant other leave statistically yes it's gone. proven yes it is proven mm-hmm. something like 90 percent. it's, it's a not lot. a small number it's all right you're leaving yeah. cool i wish that would have been conveyed to me or at least confided in me when it happened because i felt like it was something i did wrong even though i know that i know that's not what it was it still felt that way mm-hmm. because it was like oh i got cancer and so they don't love me anymore because i'm defective and then also the friends that you know disappeared that were like hey i have cancer and they're like great see you around take care Mm -hmm. and then to this day like i've really never heard from them ever again (laughs) so that kind of stuff and then of course like the human sexuality and activity that you're 
going to feel and want to do maybe during that period of time too would have been a nice conversation i had two nurses that told me two polar opposite things and even though both scenarios were hilarious because i was locked in on it still would have been a good conversation to have prior hey when your blood counts are here and you're doing this you should not do anything i was surprised to learn that when like fluids specifically sperm get on and or in or around someone that the person providing it has had chemotherapy it can actually burn and i was like what that makes sense <laughs> not something you think the, about like no, why would you think it's about not. that you made me think of something edward that's why i'm saying it makes sense i would have never thought that until you said it and until i made this correlation i remember when I was taking chemotherapy, they said, make sure if you can to use a separate bathroom. If someone's visiting or if someone's living with you, make sure you're going on chemo, you use a separate bathroom because it's very toxic. Sorry to interrupt. Yes. No, not an interruption. And that's totally a thing too. I'm sure you can relate to this too. The way that different chemos change the color of your urine. Yes. And like how you're peeing out pink and you're like, what? How did this happen? All right. I got some pink on the inside now. It's a lot of those things. Mm -hmm. They're not really, they're not really there to tell you. Yeah. And I don't know if it's because they can't or they don't know how, or they're uncomfortable in doing so, or they're just kind of like, you'll figure it out. But in my opinion, in that kind of scenario, like the less you have to figure out, the better. Just I tell me. I agree. Because you can like, mentally I'm prepare. I'm an adult. Yeah. I can handle it. Like, tell me. Exactly. Tell me I'm going to pee brown. Just tell yeah. me. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for sharing that. I, of course, never knew that, but it's helpful for people to know out there who are in relationships or dating, having sex that maybe on chemotherapy that, hey, this is something you need to be aware of. And I've never heard it before. I've never heard anyone else say that. So it's important. Thank you. It's so important. And it's, again, like part of being a human. And I, I fear in saying that I feared this being true in saying that when you are in a hospital scenario with something such as cancer, it is my experience that they treat you, at least I felt this way at my first hospital, like you're already dead and they can just do whatever they want and hope that it works and maybe you won't. So a lot of the human components of what we're talking about here go away and you're just this body that they're putting things into to see what works. And the rest of the things that matter that you're feeling and thinking and want or don't want fall to the wayside. Yes, that's so true. I experienced that to a certain extent. And I've talked to hundreds of people probably that have said, I just felt like I was a number. They just come in and do whatever and leave and, oh, I'll see you soon. No explanation or nothing, especially if they don't ask any questions. To me, that's just not right. That adds to the anxiety and stress and everything else. It's just not a way to treat people. We're still alive, like you said. Yeah. And to your point about asking questions, like if they don't ask you questions, yes, of course. But I will say until I'm blue in the face, always ask 
questions. If you have the team in the room, if you have your doctor in the room, come up with a question to ask. Even if it's something stupid, just ask a question because it gets them engaged and maybe it can get you to learn more about what is actually going on. And I would say this for families and friends that are there too. Get them to ask questions. Write them down. My mom had a whole notebook of questions. And when the doctors would come in, we'd be like, okay, these are our questions. That's right. Yes. <laughs> and it it could end up being the difference between you making it or having a complication or not. I had so many complications, most of which were my fault, but a couple things could have been literally, they were really my fault, but a couple of things I could have asked to help me. Another kind of component of this too, that I totally took advantage of and abused was like, I think it was after my my second or third chemo, it was bad. Things were bad. And my mm -hmm. best friend was a bartender at the time. I called my doctor. I was like, can I have a drink, please? Um, He's yes. like, you can have one or two, but don't go crazy. And of course, I went completely crazy. Yeah. Like hours after I had chemo, I was like, let's oh, drink. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. Oh, Oh yeah, that was my that was one of my favorite coping mechanisms. Was like whip out the bourbon, things are bad. Like yeah. the liver's taking chemo, alcohol's nothing. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> We're fine. You're like, I got this right here. That's easy. I got this. This is water for my liver right now. <laughs> We're hydrating. It's good. I want to ask you, Edward, <laughs> you mentioned the friends and the guy that you were dating. Some friends disappeared. How did you cope with that? Because another thing is we don't talk about mental health and cancer very much. It's starting to happen, but that's not something you're warned about either is how do I deal with all of this? So in the midst of trying to navigate the cancer, the treatments, and now relationships, how did you cope with that part, the relationship piece? I think this is three answers. One is alcohol, mm -hmm. drank my way, and also hooked up with people that I shouldn't have to cope and feel better about myself. The hooking up thing was more so because I wanted to feel pretty and be validated, but it was mm -hmm. tied in. But I think that things were so bad that I didn't have space for things that didn't matter. And so if people weren't going to treat me like I didn't matter, then I didn't need to waste energy on them. It was like, great, out, bye, next. I don't have time for this. And that was already my attitude going into it. It was like, I was busy. I had things going on and I did not have time for this. So that's how mm -hmm. I treated a lot of that experience was like, I'm not here to be your lab rat. I got to go. I have things I want to do. Let's wrap this up. The friend thing hurt a lot because it was someone that I thought was one of my best friends and had been for years and it was just like and you're just gonna go all right same with the guy that i was dating we had been together for about a year and it was like oh you're seeing someone else and have been for a while now oh got it cool 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 and that's not to say i didn't have a deep reaction to either of those things but it was easier to get over because it was like i'm just trying to live here I think another part of it was I definitely went to therapy. But once the breakup happened, I was like, I think I'm really not okay. And yeah. I really need to talk to someone. The therapist component was really helpful to a point until it wasn't. But in the beginning, it really was because I just needed to talk out what was happening with that situation. And really with the friend too, they both tied in was just like to quote Cheryl Crow, are you strong enough to be my man? <laughs> no, you weren't. You weren't. So there's the door and get out. Yeah. But it hurt. It was terrible. I remember sitting on her couch in her office and just like 
finally succumbing to the idea that I really did need help and I really wasn't okay. I just put, I had my little Starbucks coffee. It was March, April-ish. No, I think it was February, March. And I put my coffee down on the counter, the windowsill, and I just cried. And I just let it happen. And I was so embarrassed. I tried to hide in my sweater. And we talked through it a little bit, but it was so helpful. And it was so nice to have a release in a safe space where I wasn't really a patient that wasn't a support group. Because the idea of a support group made me want to blow my brains out. No, I don't need to sit in a circle and talk about how everyone's hurting and sad. We know. Okay, we know. No one is enjoying this. No one's sitting here, God, just one more chemo, please. Exactly. No one is doing that. And it was not helpful to be pushed in the direction of going to these support groups all the time. They're like, we have a support group here. I'm like, I don't need one. I don't. What I need <laughs> I <know. laughs> is not that. I don't want to sit around talking about my problems all day, which is one of the reasons I resisted therapy for so long. But really, everything just piled on so hard that I needed more attention and more specificity to what my circumstances were than a support group could have provided. And so that's why I did the therapy thing. It was helpful right. until it wasn't. I'm so happy that you did that for yourself and that you were able to release because it's a lot. It is a lot. A lot of times people don't even realize what they've been through and what they're holding on to until after. I was just going to say that after part is really the other reason why I wrote the book. I had met someone who had just found out very recently from when I met them that they were cancer-free. And at this point, I was two or three years out, and I felt so disassociated from my own life. And I was just going through the motions. I look at photos of me from back then, and I just look glazed over, like the black dead behind the eyes kind of thing. And I was. I just was completely ungrounded. I had no tether. I had no compass. I was just like doing what I thought I remembered doing to move forward and meeting this person and having this conversation he basically just said i don't know what i'm doing i hate everyone i'm around everything irritates me i don't want to go to work and i don't want to listen to my friends talk about their problems and i feel bad i feel like a bad friend and a bad like kid to my parents or whatever because essentially i can't stand them and it hit so hard because I was like, oh, that's what I've been trying to tell myself. And to be clear, this was like after I was told I was cancer-free. So we're mm -hmm. a couple years out now. And for those couple years, I was just like, I don't want to have this career that I'm trying to pursue. It feels terrible. I don't want to sit around and listen to my friends talk about the dumb stuff that they're talking about because it makes me mad. I don't want to do anything really it was just like getting up and getting dressed and going through the motions of having a job and going through your day it was like enough and it was terrible i thought there was something wrong with me and that maybe i should go back to therapy because at this point i had stopped and i was like something's wrong i don't know what it is and as soon as this person said those things i was like this is cancer related i need to learn more. So I called a couple of people I knew who had cancer at some point, and we had this conversation and every single one of them was like, yes, that is true. I still feel that way. I took that and like that moment. And I was like, I'm going to write a book about this because that above all the other things was not told to me that I was no. going to somehow feel like a stranger in my own life and feel like a stranger in my own body. And like really figuring out how to get back in touch with yourself.
or something like that. And the best way that I can articulate it, and I feel like I talk about this at nausea, but this is the first time you're hearing it. So this is what it is, is that regardless of your cancer situation, you have experienced multiple deaths, right? Like the person that you were before you were diagnosed is dead and gone. They're no longer in the picture. The person that you were as a patient, dead and gone, no longer in the picture. But everything that has led up to that point is now where you're at. And so the post-cancer survivor version of you also needs to die. You need to figure out who you want to be from that point and make a decision and go forward with it and let that person go. And the best part about that, and I think it's the hardest part, but it's the best part, is that you're in control of that and you get to decide. So if your friends are annoying you and you don't want to see them anymore, guess what? You can go get new friends. If you don't like the career you had before you had cancer, guess what? You don't have to do that anymore. You can go do something else. And it really is fiercely taking control of your autonomy and your agency and realizing how powerful you are in that moment that you're almost like a blank slate and you can just be like i am gonna do whatever i want and the best part is you get to play the cancer card because <laughs> if anyone questions a thing <laughs> i'm like, laughing whatever, I, I, almost, get it. I had cancer and for a while i felt bad about doing that and then i was like no I'm going to play it as much as I can just to get ahead. Like, you earned I don't it. Care. Hey, <laughs> you earned it. I had so many negative feelings about doing it. And I was like, oh, that feels like morally wrong. Fine. It's morally wrong. I'm going to play it because I can and I want to. It has become the part of me that I lead with. Like, for some reason, this shameful thing, I didn't tell anyone I had cancer. It was just like my closest friends and family. I basically disappeared off of social media for the better part of a year, unless I was wearing like a hat and glasses and was outside and you couldn't tell at all. But I (laughs) resurfaced and told everyone what happened. And then you get this fanfare of, oh my God, congratulations. And then it all goes away (laughs) and the dust settles and you're like, okay, what do I do now? And it's exciting. And I wish I would have viewed it as being exciting. Because I didn't. I viewed it as this huge mountain that I had to climb that like my old self was holding on to my back. I get it. Leave me alone. (laughs) I'm not you anymore. Let go. It's hard. It's really hard. But that whole process of coming out of the hospital and they just kick you to the curb. Like you go back and you like go do follow up appointments and whatnot. But they're like, bye. Thank you so much. See you in a week or so, whatever. There were times where I missed that. I missed that structure. I missed having the appointments and having something to do. And then when that was all gone, it was like, I have nothing to do. What do I do? Because you're too (laughs) sick to work, but you're well enough to do things. There's that really weird teetering moment where you're like, I'm still going to doctor's appointments, but I also am in recovery, but I also feel good. And I also can go make money. There's so much happening. And then the body dysmorphia of it all, like the brain craziness (laughs) of it all that you need to figure out. There's so much mental gymnastics to be done after you're cancer free. Like the cancer thing we can talk about days at a time. Hospitals are a hot mess. The medical system's a hot mess. The whole cancer experience is a hot mess. When you are done, that's the harder part. And I found myself wishing I could go back to the hospital to have some kind of structure, like wishing something would happen or go wrong so that I could go back to the hospital and know what my place was because I didn't know. That was the worst feeling because you're like, I'm so glad it's over, but also I want to go back. Yes. (laughs) I have to thank you 
because you have done an amazing job, Edward, of sharing all of these things. I don't really have anything else to add to what you said because you explained it so well. You created a very vivid picture. And while you were talking about some of these things, it took me back. And I think it's so important for people to know about the things that we go through, the people that are diagnosed with cancer, what they go through. And everything that you said is true. There's so many different aspects and components of it. And it's just, okay, I'm happy to be alive. I should be happy to be alive, but I'm so confused. And I don't know what to do it's next. Confusing. Yeah, it's yes. confusing. All of it is. It's like being birthed out into a world that you don't recognize anymore. Yeah. Or like being in a foreign country where no one speaks your language and you're just, okay, I guess I'll figure it out. Cool, cool, yeah. cool. And you do. And most people do figure it out. But there is still that little emptiness that's, what is happening? And I cannot stress enough the thing that really saved me. And this, we're talking like this was nine or 10 years out from this, mm -hmm. was like owning it and claiming it and claiming yourself and being like, no, this is what I want and who I'm going to be. So I guess the thing that I could convey most is just make the decision like whatever is speaking to you to move forward with, do that. Because it took me almost a decade after the fact to figure that out. Again, like I wasn't on social media. I didn't want to talk about cancer. It was the thing that I was hiding from. Yes. But then also how hilarious is it that now the thing I was hiding from is the thing that I talk about the most. <laughs> I get it. I get it. Get yeah, it. here we are. <laughs> here we are. <laughs> is there anything else you want to add? Because I was going to ask you this very specific question, but for me, I feel like you already answered it. And that question is, how has cancer changed you? How is it not? There you go. I do sometimes see like little tiny flecks of the person I was before. It's rare. It is so rare, <laughs> but it yeah. happens. And in a way, I'm glad that he's not here because I don't mm -hmm. think that if this wouldn't have happened, that I would be the kind of person that I'd want to hang out with. So in a lot mm -hmm. of ways, cancer is the best thing that ever happened to me. It was a real like attitude adjustment for yeah. one. And it also has stepped on the gas pedal of wanting to do something. And this book is a huge example of that. It's like the thing that I made about the thing that happened to me. And where would I be without it? This is turning into a career now, like of hopefully public speaking, but also writing and talking about this and advocacy and everything else. If I didn't have this, where, what would I even be doing? What a weird thought. I don't think there's a single corner of my life that cancer has not touched in one way or another. And I mean that in mostly a good way. Are there, do I have moments where I have a PTSD moment where all of a sudden I'm having like hypochondriac moments where something feels off and I'm like, I'm dying. That still happens. <laughs> Fewer and farther between than in the beginning when it was every couple of hours and just like compulsively checking all my lymph nodes to make sure I was okay. <laughs> Okay. I believe you know me. It's just crazy because this is weird now. <laughs> it's like, it's what you lose it. You, you go do. completely psychotic on yourself because you're like, oh my God, that bruise is taking too long to heal. Maybe there's something wrong. Maybe I have leukemia now. Maybe it turned into the, and you just become a crazy person, which is again, why I drank a lot. 
So I do say, and I mean it in the very literal sense, that cancer is the best thing that happened to me because it really adjusted and fixed a lot of things that I wanted. It gave me a lot of things that I wanted. Like there's been a lot of big things that have happened for me this year as a result of this book. And one of one of the biggest things that I don't want to say I take for granted, but I don't really like think about it in the magnitude that it really is that I had a billboard in Times Square with my book oh. on it this year. And it was mine. It was just oh. mine, 33 feet high wow. and 55 feet across. Like that's what I wanted. I moved to New York to be an actor. And I always thought that, like I'd get up on a billboard because of a show, but this is better because it's my show. It's my book. I made it. It's mine. And I was on a billboard. So again, like without cancer, there would be no book. There would be no you and me right now. There would be no billboard. There'd be nothing. And my life would be so empty without it. Mm-hmm. So I think another thing too is like owning your power. In addition to that, lean into it. This yes. is who you are now talking about it and sharing what happened to you is only going to help you too. Because sometimes even in these podcasts, like digital press tour that I'm doing for myself and my book, I will have moments where I say something that I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah, actually, it's helpful for me to talk about it too. Yes, that's so true. There's a couple of things. One thing is when I look back, nothing was really funny about what I was going through. And every time I talk with people, And you today were able to have these laughs and reflect back on our experiences. And to me, it's a blessing to be able to be here and just be like, oh, that was wild. I don't know how I made it, but I made it and I was a hot mess. And to be able to laugh at that, I think it's a blessing. I really do. It's so important. And yeah, the other thing too that I will often bring up is the intentionality of making good memories Mm -hmm. during a period of time like that. My friends that stuck with me, we always had parties. We had parties at my apartment. We'd meet at someone's bar and do that whole thing. I had a pizza party in my stem cell transplant room before I had it. Like I said, we were the fun room. We're (laughs) like, if this is going to be the end, we're going to make it the best. And also, if I live, I get to look back at this and be like, that was fun. I'm glad we did this. Yes. It's the intentionality of giving your friends and family and whatnot the moments, but also for yourself so that you can look back and be like, that was genuinely fun. Like everything was terrible, but that moment was genuinely fun. And to your point of being able to look back and laugh and be like, everything was a hot mess. (laughs) (laughs) It's why I chose musical theater as the framework of this book, because what better way to tell such a ridiculous experience and an insane story than through something like musical theater, which is inherently ridiculous and insane. (laughs) Yes. What is the main message that you would like people to get from your book? And then also, where can they find it? So the main message I think is, yes, this is hard, but let's all laugh at it, laugh at it, have a good moment to take a step back and be like, this is ridiculous, you know, and I think that's important. Not that I'm saying don't take it seriously, because you should obviously take your health and whatever is going on seriously, but being able to remove yourself from the situation and be like, what just happened? Like, I, I remember my first, my first spinal infusion there were like 10 people in the room. I was like laying on my side and this student medical doctor child was like trying to get into my spinal cord. And like, I'm feeling all kinds of things in my legs and nerves are going crazy. And she just says, I'm having a really hard time accessing your spinal column. You have a really narrow spinal column. 
and I just flipped. I like turned my head, and like, <laughs> again, I'm a big person. I am all rib cage. I am six foot four. At the time, I was like two fifty. Like I just looked at her, and I was like, "That's not possible." <laughs> and it was so insane that she like blamed her ineptitude on, on your body on this, yeah. on this imaginary. Thing. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so being able to remove yourself and having a good laugh at what has happened to you is so valuable and important. It's necessary. I don't like the idea of someone looking back at an experience that they've had like cancer and just feeling terrible about themselves because of it. And I'm sure that happens, yeah. but being able to just have a good chuckle. It's healing too. I think it's very therapeutic for me. It is to just be able to say, wow, because it's almost like I'm looking at someone else now. And it's like, whew, they made it, but boy, that was rough. Real. Yeah. For me, it's very healing to just be able to say, wow, I'm still standing after all of that. Yeah. And in a sense, it's a coping mechanism in the moment, too. We all mm -hmm. react differently to grief or trauma or, or things that are happening to us. But if you can take the moment to take a deep breath and have a good laugh at what's happening, regardless of what it is, like it's so important. <laughs> I think of the pace that my life changed was so breakneck. It was just like, I think in terms of like TV, film or movies where like all of a sudden I'm like on a stage somewhere out in like performing whatever. And I come back to the city and then smash cut. I'm in a hospital room, like hooked up to machines that are beeping at me. And what a ridiculous transition. Yes. <laughs> it was maybe 10 days at the very most between you have cancer and let's get you started on chemo. I think 10 days is probably generous. I think it was probably oh, more wow. like five. Wow. It was fast. It was growing so fast that they were like, we need to do something right now. So it's a very um, aggressive cancer. Yeah. From the time to point back to all the way back to the beginning, from the time that I had the little lump that I discovered until the time it was a grapefruit, that was only four or five months. So it was like, like real, real fast yeah. roving. But yeah, so that was that. But where you can find my book, Cancer Musical Theater and Other Chronic Illnesses, <laughs> is if you're in New York City, it is at the Drama Bookshop on West 39th Street, which is owned by Lin-Manuel Miranda, and we love. Very proud of that. That was another big thing that happened this year that I don't give myself enough credit for accomplishing. Congratulations. Um, Congrats. Thank you. Thank you. So it's at the Drama Bookshop in New York City if you're in the tri-state area and feel like popping in or if you're coming to visit. Otherwise, you can find it pretty much anywhere online that you buy books. Barnes & Noble, obviously, Amazon. It's on Walmart and Booktopia and Indigo for our international friends, for Waterstones, for our UK people. I think there's 40 retailers that are carrying it. You can find it somewhere. Thank you. <laughs> I will put that information in the listen notes to help people find it who are interested in learning more. There is one question that I really want to ask, Edward, and that is, okay. what's one word that you would describe how you survived or you're surviving cancer? Oh my God. One word to describe <laughs> how I'm surviving cancer. I'm saying this out loud because I don't know and I'm stalling for time. <laughs> <laughs> one one word to describe how I'm surviving cancer. I think this is going to sound so like eye roll, but I want to say like with transcendence, because I don't really feel like I am surviving cancer anymore feel like mm -hmm. that's so in the rear view that was the thing that happened to me like when you went through puberty or you graduated high school or like you went to college it's like a thing that you did that's behind you now because again it's been over 10 years and so it's just like 
cool. That's the thing that happened. I don't want to say it's an afterthought because again, I talk about this all the time, but like the way in which I'm surviving cancer right now, I don't think exists. I just mm-hmm. think it's an, it's another day. If okay. I come up with a better answer that I think about later, you like, you know, okay. when you get in a fight with someone <laughs> and two years later, you're like, this is what I should have said. This is what I get. <laughs> right. <laughs> if I have that moment, I'll let you know. <laughs> okay. Perfect. That's perfect. The final question, Edward, before we wrap up, and I think this is really important for what you've shared too. What is something that you would tell your 18 year old self? Looking back. Oh, God. My 18-year-old self. Talk about a hot mess. <laughs> Good Lord. My 18-year-old self. I think I would want him to be a little bit more focused and have a little bit more intention of the direction in which he was moving. Because I moved to New York right out of high school. Like, literally, I graduated on the 27th of May, and on June 1st, my lease started. So I was out. I did not go to college. I just was like, I'm leaving. I'm going to go create a life of my own. And because of that, and I don't really regret any of this, but because of it, I spent a lot of time like with shiny object syndrome, where it was like, oh my God, I'm in New York. I'm by myself. I can do all the things and no one can tell me anything. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I think I really wish that I would have been a little bit more focused and had more intention about what I wanted because Mm -hmm. I spent the first three years doing whatever I wanted, but had no focus or intention about anything and being stupid and a teenager. So I think I would tell him that, get it together. Okay. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think it's very helpful, not only for ourselves, but for other people out there that are young and they may be feeling the same way. I don't know. I'm just living life. I'm young. But in reality, they haven't realized it yet. But tomorrow you're going to be 35, (laughs) wondering what the heck have I done? So, yes. (laughs) Every day I wonder that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. My birthday's coming up. I'm going to be 37. And I'm like, wait a minute, what? (laughs) (laughs) I don't like it. It comes fast, I tell you. Edward, I want to thank you so much for everything that you've shared today. I've enjoyed talking with you. Please tell everyone out there listening where they can find you, your social media, your website. Sure. I am on all platforms at Edward. Miski. So that is just my full name, first and last, no spaces, dots, or anything. Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, all the things. Just Google me. You can find me. <laughs> okay. Perfect. Thank you. And I will also put your information in the list and notes. Before we end, is there anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners? Yes, actually, exciting news, depending when this episode is coming out, with everything going on with the SAG-AFTRA and WGA strikes that are happening and negotiating with the AMPTP, God willing, that happens soon, my book is being adapted for TV, which I'm really excited about. It is going to be a musical TV series. Please keep an eye out for that. I'm not going to give any more information. Okay, congratulations. <laughs> yet, but f- follow along on the socials because once the strike is over, we're going to be moving at a breakneck pace to get that kind of up and running and going. And if anyone wants to give money as a gift to make that happen, please do because these things are expensive. Yes. <laughs> but more importantly, read the book, get everything out of it that you can and find me, stalk me. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much, Edward. Again, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for sharing your story and being so transparent. I really appreciate it. And I know that the listeners do as well. Thank you for having me. It was great. Yes, my pleasure. I want to give a shout out to the listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. Please share, follow, and subscribe and tell your friends and family about it. That is it for this Wednesday. And until next time, let's keep navigating cancer together. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Navigating Cancer Together. I hope you found it helpful. Please be sure to subscribe, share, and tell your friends and family about it. For notes from the show and previous episodes, visit ontheotherside.life and check out the podcast section. I would love it if you join me for the next episode. Talk to you soon.